and grab a seat. And, uh, and while you're sitting, you can try and answer this question. In 2018, there was a book that had sold worldwide 120 million copies. Anyone know what that book was? What? No. John? No. It's a kid's book. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. There you go. Easy, isn't it? Harry Potter and Philosopher's Stone. Um, so 120 million copies uh, worldwide uh, up to that point. So not just in that year, but up to when it was released. Um, which doesn't make it the, the world's largest selling book. Um, if you go to Wikipedia and type up um, the top 10 all best time selling books you'll find uh, a list. And on that list, uh, Harry Potter is, is on that list. Um, but the number one book, anyone want to take a guess? No. Close. Close. I think it's sort of a Narnia equivalent. Lord of the Rings, yes, J.R. Tolkien. He has two books, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, both make the top ten list. I think Lord of the Rings, 150 million copies sold. Now, that's on the table. Now, if you go to that website and, and look at um, and read it, there's an actual paragraph before that, that list on Wikipedia that will actually talk about the Bible. And what it says is, by and large, and by a long way, the Bible is the, 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 the most published and sold book in all of history. In fact, every year, not just over time, but each year, more Bibles are sold um, than any other book each and every year. Now, publishers don't want that on the list. They don't want it. And they, the Wikipedia is upfront about this. They don't want it there because it makes all the other books look low. In fact, when Harry Potter topped the list, all the publishers, boy, uh, approached the, the people who do these lists and said, please, please, can we have two lists? Can we have the children's book lists and the adults one because it's pushing our book down um so they don't want the bible there because they, so when you look up books and lists you know you'll see it often where you see the top 10 selling books this year um always know in your mind the bible's always at the top okay it's always there but here's some seven other interesting facts about the bible as we look at being equipped with god's word today let's start off with some interesting facts here's fact number one the Bible is unique in its continuity now what on earth does that mean it means that the bible was written by at least 40 authors. There's at least 40 different people who contribute to the writing of it. And they write the Bible, because if you're familiar with it at all, it's made up of, of smaller books and, and letters and, and histories and accounts. Um, that was written over 1,600 years. So 1,600 years it took to write the Bible and get it all together, by 40-plus different authors. Now, that, that's quite incredible, isn't it? And what's amazing about that, though, is that it's unique in that when you bring all those books together, when you bring the, the story together in one volume like this, and when you read it and analyse it and compare it, and, and you, know, you look at the reliability and the validity of it all, when you look at all of that, it is one story. It's quite amazing. It is one story. There's a continuity. All of it seems to point and paint this picture of a God who creates a God who is grieved by the, 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 the death and destruction and a God who redeems and saves the world, all because he loves. This is one story. Uh, number two, it's the most read book in the world. Yep, without a doubt. Um, anyone want to know what the, the, the most um, widespread translation is? 
we use the NLT here, but not the NLT. King James, yes, still is. Apparently in America, 82% of Christians who read their Bible every day still read the King James. New King James, probably. Um, the third point, it has been translated into more than 2,100 languages. Now, Harry Potter's only been translated into 80 languages. Um, it's a long way to go. So that, that's at least 2,100. Now, that's, some of that is not full translations. That, that's portions of it. Um, fact four, that more manuscript evidence than, it has more manuscript evidence than any other book. Now, what does that mean? Well, if it's a book that's been written over 1,600 years, it started a long, long time ago. So there's this question that's raised with the Bible. How do we know that what we're reading here is the same as what was written back then? How do we know? Well, we, we try and work that out by following the trail. We compare it to old manuscripts, and the older the manuscript, the closer it is to the original. We know we're, we're pretty close. So when we look at the scriptures, there is, there is countless, countless examples of these old manuscripts. Now, we, don't have the, we, we do not have the original letter that Paul wrote on. Okay? Paper back then disintegrated and wore down very quickly. It's very hard to, to maintain these types of scrolls. So, so most of the writings we have and evidence we have from back in those days is when it was um, carved onto a stone tablet or, or a clay pot or something where they inscribed it. Those things seem to last better than the paper they made. But when you take the Bible and if you compared it to, let's say, the, the other writings from around that time, if you took the top 10 that had the most amount of manuscript evidence, if you combined the top 10 and took all the evidence that it has, it's about that much compared to what the Bible has. Uh, like the Bible far outweighs, it has more evidence for it, showing the consistency of the message over time than any other book. Number five, it's withstood every attack made against it. I mean, do you think people have tried to find error in this? have tried to, to point out what's wrong with it. I think that, I don't know whether it's real or not, but the, apparently the story goes that there's this American millionaire who's offered a um, million dollars to anyone who can disprove the Bible. No one's been able to do it yet. I think the, it, it's still available. Um, so if you're interested in getting quick rich, I, I suggest you look elsewhere because you'll never do it. Um, people have tried. People have tried. They've tried to look at the errors and, and the, the, the contradictions. And uh, if you Google it, you'll come across all sorts of little things. People nitpicking on little tiny details so one of those details Solomon has 140,000 horses or does he have 120,000 horses and chariots because it says a different number see obvious error and so yeah but they're written by two different people in two different times do you think he could have bought 20,000 horses in the past three years um, maybe um, you, you, error or just I don't know it doesn't seem like solid proof to me, uh, but that's about as good as they can get. That's about as close as they can get. If you don't believe me, go Google it. Um, go do your research. You'll, you'll, you'll be amazed. You'll go, wow, this is quite impressive um, that the Bible is so consistent. Um, number six, archaeological, archaeology continues to confirm it. Um, this amazes me. You would think if the Bible's not true, if it's not talking about real history and real people and real places and real events, that eventually we're going to dig something up in the dirt that goes, ha, see, gotcha. Um, but in fact, the actual opposite is true. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, everyone know, familiar with the, the, the nation, the Hittites? If you read the Bible, you are. If you don't read the Bible, you're not, because it doesn't exist anywhere else. There is no other mention of Hittites anywhere. Um, for the first 1900 years since Christ came, there is, there's nothing, there's no record. Modern people thought it was made up, that it was just this Bible thing that, that made up this nation, see, therefore it's wrong. 
But in 1902, a guy by the name of Hugo uh, Winkler uh, was digging, in 1906, sorry, was digging around Turkey and he uncovered 10,000 stone tablets that, that basically outlined the history of the Hittites. Uh, and what they found was where he was digging was the actual capital um, of the Hittite nation. And so, once again, the Bible um, proves to be correct when there is an absence of knowledge anywhere else. Uh, and that happens time and time again. It's just incredible. And number seven, the only book to contain so many prophecies. Now, think about this. If you were going to write something as outrageous as this is what God says, and you, you were crazy enough to claim that this God, this man, this human being that lived and walked amongst us, that no one's denying that. No one denies that Jesus was a real man and lived um, and, and was a teacher and, and had disciples and started a movement. No one denies it. And you're going to claim that he, this guy's God? And so to prove that, you're going to make these wild outlandish claims, these predictions about the future. And so you're going to do that. And you're not just going to do one or two. You're going to do thousands of these. You're going to do like in the hundreds, if not thousands, uh, prophecies that, that if any one of these things don't come true, everyone will just laugh at your book and go, <laughs> yeah, good guess, um, but I'm sorry, that's just outright wrong. I mean, would you do that? Of course not. And yet the Bible contains more prophecies in it than any other book. And what do we find? Each and every one of those prophecies come true. History bears it out. Uh, hundreds of prophecies about Christ and the Messiah and in Jesus. Even seemingly contradiction that he will be king, but he will suffer, that he will die, uh, that he will shed blood, that he will be cursed uh, and, and put to death on a tree. All these different contradictions, and yet somehow in Christ, they all just kind of woof beautifully um, from people writing hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Um, quite an incredible thing. The Bible is just like unlike any other book. It is incredible. I'm going to share one more fact with you. Um, it's not a fact about the Bible, it's a fact about me. Um, I believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. I believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Now, what does that mean? Um, the two words are different. Um, we might interchange them. Inerrant basically means without error. So when we look at the scriptures, I personally believe they are without error. I've come to that conclusion by, by reading them numerous times, comparing them, looking at, at where they differ. Um, so take, for example, the Gospels. When the Gospels talk about events, sometimes they use different language. Sometimes um, they say it a little different. Um, does that mean it's wrong, that it's contradicting itself? Well, no. If Louise and I described the date we had last week and gave an account of it, would those accounts be the same? No, of course not. You would expect eyewitness people to give it from their perspective and their view. And so, so we find in the Gospels. But do they complement each other? Can, can, we, can we bring them together? And, and Oh, yeah, they work together. Yep. Yes, we can. That's right. So I believe it is without error. Now, that doesn't say that it's precise. There's a very big difference between or how do you define error. Error doesn't mean it's... it's, it's precise. So when you ask me how old I am, what am I going to say? 42. Well, no, no, I don't know the exact date, but 42. I'm going to say 42. I'm not going to say 42 years, 212 days, 3 hours, 6 minutes and 10 seconds, am I? I mean, it's not what you're after. Um, it, 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 you don't want to hear that, you'd be like, that's not what, you would actually say, that's not what I was asking, wouldn't you? 
That's right. And so when people go, oh, see, the Bible's not specific enough. It's not precise enough there. It's like, well, because it's not trying to answer your question. Um, so you've got to look at the, the context. So when I say it's without error, I mean that it, it fits the purpose. It, in, it fits the intended purpose of why it was written. If it was meant to, to write in poetic terms, then I'd treat it as poetry. I don't treat it as a scientific textbook. Okay, if I read it as an, an eyewitness account of true historical events, then I read it like that, and and I use different. I treat it differently. That makes sense, and so I, I believe the Bible it meets its intended purpose. Um, infallible is a very different word. Now, infallible is not something you can conclude based on reading the Bible. Okay, infallible means that I believe it is unable to be. With error, it's it's incompatible with error. It's it's it will never be an error. That, that's what infallible means, and that's a statement of faith. That is, I, I as long and as hard as you look, I don't think you'll ever find error in this because I genuinely believe it is the word of God. I believe that God did go to the trouble of of inspiring people throughout history to put paper to pen and to make records of what took place between him and his people, between what he pronounced and what he said, and particularly around the time of Jesus, the, the, the life and, and accounts and details of Jesus' life, that it was recorded. Uh, that the apostles after Jesus, that they would give instructions inspired by the Holy Spirit that filled them, that they would write and give words to, to, to the world that come from God. Um, I believe that. I believe that you'll never find error. I believe it has no error, then you will never find it. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're actually sitting in a church that believes that very thing. Because we believe it, that's why we can look at it and we can nitpick at it. That's why we can look at, why does it use that word and not that word? Why does it put the words in that order? Why is he not mentioning this? Or, or why? That, that's why we can go into such detail. It's not because preachers are looking for things to talk about. Um, you know, I couldn't preach on Lord of the Rings. I, I can't unpack it and go, oh, see what J.R. Tolkien was doing there. Um, see, when he uses this word and that order, and you know, this is the, the, in the original language, that's this word, and he used it in this passage as well. And, that's, and he could have used this word. We can't unpack J.R. Tolkien like that because I don't believe it's... There's anything sacred or anything um, particularly special about his words. These words I do. And so in the text this morning, as we, we sort of unpack this being equipped with God's word topic this morning, we're going to look at a passage where I think we can really look at this, where we can say what is said really does matter. So we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 8. So if you've got your Bible, you can look up Nehemiah 8, because um, it'll be interesting to see what it says in your Bible. I was caught off guard this morning because when I, I was doing my research and, and looking at it, so that I can just copy and paste um, easy into my notes. I, I look at an online Bible. Um, and it was written different to my paper Bible. So I flipped over my paper Bible and I'm making this big point and all of a sudden it's like, oh, mine doesn't say that. Um, or do that. Um, so we're going to do this. Now to help you get some context for Nehemiah 8, because Nehemiah 8 um, is an Old Testament book uh, and it's a story of God's people returning from exile. And so I want to give some context to that. Um, before we look at it. So Nehemiah is um, someone who is in exile. He is servant to the king. Um, and God puts it on his heart to return and to, to restore Jerusalem, the city of God, back to, to its former glory. So to restore the, 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 and, and finish the completion of the temple, um, the city walls, the gates, the doors, the houses, so that the people of God can return from where they had been spread 
and they could return home. And so Nehemiah tells this story. And so in chapter 6, we, we read that the, the work is finished, that the gates, uh, the doors, sorry, not the gates or the doors, I'll get it right, the walls around the city are completed, um, which is a significant event because as the walls are finished and completed, They've had huge opposition, all the surrounding nations. I mean, let's face it, here's this big plot of land. It's, it's fantastic, fertile land, it's got a great big lake, it's got fish, it's got natural resources, it's beautiful. I mean, it's the promised land of God. It's land worth having. And so the people of God have been sent out of exile, they've been booted out. So all the surrounding nations have gone, you beaut, uh, and they've moved in. Now, they're not too happy about the people of God returning and establishing themselves again. And so they have faced opposition. The, the surrounding nations have tried to stop them building the walls and protecting them because once they get a foothold in there, they know they're going to be harder to get out. And so in chapter 6 we read, as the walls are completed, all the nations around just go, oh my goodness, like we've done everything we could to stop this. And yet it is, it, it, somehow they've managed to do it. And they throw their hands in the air and basically say, God is with these people. God is surely on their side. And so they stand back. And so in chapter 6, we find this relative peace that they have. All the enemies back off and they, 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 they can breathe. Then in chapter 7, we read that the final touches to the, the walls are completed. It's no use having a wall to keep out your enemies if you haven't got doors and gates on the, the big holes in it. And so in chapter 7, they put all the doors and gates in. And now it's safe. Now it's secure. Now there is peace. Now they no longer have to, to carry spear and... And, um, and hammer as they build the wall to protect themselves. They can rest easy. They don't have to, to stand watch over their house at night thinking the enemies are going to attack. There's peace. They're protected. The walls, the gates, they're secure. Um, they are finally able to, to sort of just, you know that, that feeling on a Friday when you get home from work? Um, or you've been out, busy, even from holidays. Who comes home from holidays and goes, when you're walking through the door. It's nice just to be home. Some holidays are just work, particularly at four young kids. Um, and so there's, there's this sense of like, and at the end of chapter 7, we read these words, um, Nehemiah 7, verses, uh, verse 73, the second half. Uh, it says this, In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, and the word I want to draw your attention to is there is settled. They had settled. And think about what that word means. It's not just that they'd moved and sort of that's where they were now living. There's much more of a homely feel about this. They were now settled. They had come home. They were in exile and now finally... And they were able to breathe easy. There was a comfortableness. There was an easiness. There was a... We're here. We've arrived. It's all over. Um, the building's finished, we, we can relax. That's that sense of, of settledness here. Uh, but this is where we can pay attention to how the scriptures define themselves. Now, obviously, when this was written in Hebrew, their punctuation was very different to, to how we have it in the English. But it's interesting how the English translators and those who put the, the numbers and chapters, because when it was written, it didn't have, uh, this might be news to you, it didn't have the chapters and verse numbers in it. That was added a lot later because it makes it a heck of a lot easier than saying, oh, somewhere in the middle of Nehemiah. Um, you, know, you can tell people exactly where to go. Um, it's interesting when they split it that they take this sentence, which is one thought. Now, normally when you finish a section and you start a new chapter, you, you like to finish the sentence, don't you? You ever come across any other book that, that sort of starts a new chapter and completes the sentence from before? Oh, no, that's just odd. 
you, you, Lachlan, you would fail in English if you did that, okay? Um, they would say, sorry, you're not completing your sentences, and there's poor structure. So why? Why do they do that? Because they want us to know that there's a very clear link between chapter 7 and 28, that, that it's not completed, that it's not finished, that the work's not done. Although the walls are finished, Nehemiah, God's work is not done. And so if we keep reading in chapter 8, in, in your Bible... Mine actually says chapter 8 and starts that sentence, but then it has this little italicised superscript that says 8-1 um, for, for this next bit. So in October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose. There is still more work to be done. There's still more that needs doing. God's not finished because God's never been interested in building walls. What difference does it make if there's a wall around Jerusalem? I mean, when they were fleeing um, the Egypt, God sent a, a tower of fire, a uh, flame that, that surrounded the people and protected them. I mean, God could protect them. Uh, in, in Scripture, uh, we read numerous times where God says, the day will come when you won't need walls, when I will be your protection, I will guard you. He doesn't need walls. God doesn't want to build walls. What is God building? What is God building in Nehemiah? He's not building a wall. He's building a people. He's building a people. He's not concerned about their comfort and their livelihood. Has God ever been concerned about that? Has God ever been concerned about people being settled? I mean, let's face it, they've just come out of exile. They know that they had the blessings of God on them. They're in the promised land. They were established. They had a kingdom. They had so much going for them. There was a high point where they were blessing the nations of the world. All the promises made to Abraham right at the very beginning were being fulfilled. They had it all in real history. And yet they knew they blew it. They turned their back on God and rejected him. They disobeyed him. They ignored him. And as a result, what does God do? God doesn't say, oh, well, that's all right. You know, because really my ultimate goal for you is for you to live a blessed, happy, content, comfortable life. So keep my blessings. doesn't matter what you do. Does God do that? No, he doesn't. He says, I couldn't care less about your comfort. He says, I want a people like myself, a holy people set apart for me, people who burn after my own heart. And so he removes the blessing. He's not interested in people's comfort. He's interested in our character. And so he removes the comfort. And so here we've got these people. The building's done. They can rest. The comfort's returned, but the work is not finished. There's more to be done, much more to be done. So let's look at what that work to be done is. We're going to read Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 12. So let's um, read that. It'll be up on the screen as you can follow along. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. And as I read this, I want you to take note. It's easy to come to church, isn't it, and be passive. Can anyone tell me what um, the word liturgy means? Oh, really? Actually, that... (laughs) Yeah, I could could make that work. Um, (laughs) That's not too bad. Um, It is the coming together. Uh, Liturgy basically means the work of the people. Uh, And so it's the work that you do. Uh, And so, yeah, it's the coming together and celebrating. Um, It's the the coming together and it's the work that you do. So when you come to church and the church has liturgy, it's, it's you engaging. It's not coming passively, sitting, letting someone else do all the work. Others worship and others unpack the scriptures and, and allow God to speak. You are engaged and you are. So as we go through this scripture, I want you to be conscious of of the language. Um, and I want you to be conscious when it speaks about what the people are doing. Okay? Let's read through. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. 
they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people were bored stiff. No, it doesn't say that. All the people, I mean, we're talking six hours of straight listening to reading the whole Old Testament. Uh, All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for this occasion. To his right stood Mathathiah, uh, Shema, Ananiah, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. To his left stood Padiah, Mishael, Mikijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Hazariah, Jezebad, Hanan, and Peliah. If I say it fast enough, you won't pick up my mistakes. Then instructed the people in the law, while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they had heard God's words and understood them. It's a lot they're doing, isn't it? They're the ones asking. They are the ones saying, come, read to us the law. We want to hear it. They sit there and they listen. They stand. They raise hands. They praise. They worship. They get involved. They understood what was being said. And they weep. And they celebrate with great joy because they had heard and understood God's word. They, they are actively involved in this process. I said before, God's not interested in their comfort. He's interested in their character. The work has not finished. God's word still has work to do. God is still shaping them as a people. They may have had the land, they may have returned, but the work's only just beginning, really. The work's only just beginning for them. And it's interesting, they weep. That's their final response. After hearing and praying, getting so excited, wanting, willingly coming and saying, please read it to us, when it is read to them, and let's face it, it wouldn't be the first time they've heard it. They've heard it before. They've heard the stories. Not, maybe not all of it. Maybe it's not been read to them like that before. But they've heard it. Their parents told them the stories of, of, um, of how they were, were saved from 
the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt as slaves and, and they were turned into a people and given the promised land and, and then we lost it. We disobeyed, we turned from God, his hand was removed from us, the enemy nations came in, swept us away and now we've returned. Now we've returned. They know, but yet they're weeping. Why are they weeping? As the book of the law is read to them. Um, well, I turn to, to something like Romans 7 to help understand that. So in Romans 7, 7 it says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Um, it's like, don't think of elephants. And immediately you think of an elephant, don't you? Yeah. Um, don't covet. And you go, what? What's coveting? Oh, sounds good. Sounds interesting. Um, and then you go, oh my goodness, that's what coveting is. Oh, oh my, I do that. Um, the law helps us see what sin is. And they've just had the whole law read to them. They've seen all the sins. They've seen the idolatry. They've seen the greed. They've seen the selfishness, the violence. They've seen all of that wickedness and evil. And as they've looked at all of that and as it's been presented to them, all these things that God finds evil and wicked and detestable, as God explains to them what holiness looks like and righteousness is and what wickedness is, where do you think they see themselves? They go, oh my goodness. I am wicked. Now, we hate using words like that, don't we? Is anyone here willing to accept that they are evil and wicked? See, children are far more prone to that. Maybe because I sit there saying, you wicked wretch. Can't say, I don't know, is that why, Lachlan? But I don't know. We should all be, our hands should all be. But yet we live in modern times, postmodern times, where it's not acceptable and appropriate. We're not evil. We're just products of our environment. We are essentially good, but because we lived and, and we had bad parents and we had a bad environment or whatever, that's led us to do bad things. No, no. The Bible is very clear when it says we have to take responsibility. Where does evil come from? From within. Within each of us, isn't there? There is that dual existence. There is that good and evil. There is that wrestle. There's that fight. Um, evil doesn't exist outside of humanity. It, it resides within and if you think there's no evil inside you, now you might not like the word evil because I don't know what you think of when you think of evil. The worst of the worst. But anything that is not holy and righteous, anything that is not um, in line with God is evil, is wicked, is, is sinful, is unrighteous. Whatever word you want to use, it's there. And so the people see this and they realize, oh my goodness, we are so broken. They're weeping. Weeping. It is, it is our ancestors who've done the wrong thing, who've turned their back on God. And, and I, I dare say they're weeping to say, God, we're mourning. God, please don't let us do the same thing. We don't want to do the same. We don't want to do that. And so they come before God brokenhearted. And yet what... And I say that because what's the response that's given to them by, by Nehemiah and, and Ezra, by the, the, the Levites, the, the, the priests amongst them who are walking among them? What, what, what's the response? It's like, don't weep, don't weep. It's not that they're remembering, oh my goodness, I'm sinning right now, I need to repent. It's like, don't weep, because God's for you. This is a day of great joy. The, the, the law is there. God is redeeming you. God is restoring you. God's giving you the law. Not, not to, to let you sit in your remorse and, and, and think that, that there is nothing but judgment for you, but to know that this is a God who is restoring you, that this is a God who is redeeming you, that there is life for you. This... The joy of the Lord be your strength. That it is God's joy to restore what has been lost, to redeem what has been broken, to save. That's the heart of God. Let that be your joy. 
And so they come before the Word of God open-hearted, willing, passionate, accepting, wanting it, longing for it in their life, knowing full well, because they've just lived it, that if they don't, there will be real consequences for them. Now, we live in a different covenant, and I'm happy to talk about that afterwards. Um, We live in different times. We now live under the time where Jesus has been revealed, where the gospel of grace uh, is front and, 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 and and center, um, where God has promised to withhold his judgment uh, until he returns. And so different times of the Old Testament. Um, but the word of God still does its work. So in 2 Timothy, um, it's a, a letter that's written by Paul to a younger man in the faith, a younger man that he has put into a position of leadership, and he writes to him to encourage him and help him to understand what he's got to do. Uh, and to remind him of truths. And so in 2 Timothy three fourteen seventeen, we read this about the Word of God. It says, But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Now, if we stop right there... Um, or, You've been taught the Holy Scriptures. They've given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting Christ Jesus. These things reveal Jesus Christ to us. And by revealing Jesus, we know our way to salvation. That's wonderful. That brings us comfort and joy and security. That allows us to be settled, doesn't it? But that's not all that needs to be done. It goes on in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That's the word of God. It's God's word speaking into our lives to help us see what is wrong so we can correct it, to set before us an example of what good life is, of what it means to love. I mean, if we didn't have the Bible, how would we define love? Um, people have discussed this for, for centuries. Um, you know, in Jesus Christ, we see the clearest example of what love is. The, the, the sacrificial, laying down life, unselfish kind of love. You don't find that naturally in the world anywhere else. Um, it doesn't exist. And so the Bible is there. Now, we have... Uh, this isn't some random theme we've picked. This is something we have all contributed to. Uh, as 1030 congregation, we have been visioning, we've come together, we've storied, we've shared the best things we love about God, the best things we love about the church, and we've put that together and we've found these themes. And from 10 themes, we, we highlighted four. And so we have our four visionary themes that's gonna, that will steer us for the, the coming years. Um, at the top of the list, by a long shot, we all acknowledge that being equipped with God's word uh, is the number one priority, that, that it has changed our lives the most, more than anything else, that, that it has inspired us, that it has led us, that, that we have drawn comfort from, that the Word of God in the right place and the right time has had an incredible impact on our lives, and we've seen it impact others' lives. Um, it is important to us, and it's foundational. We've, we've created this series of four weeks based on our 1030 visionary themes. So all of Mosaic is hearing what we're on about. Um, and we've picked these because we think these are core and essential to, to who we are as a people. So for the coming uh, months, what we're going to be doing as a strategic planning work group uh, is working out how can, can we 
help all of us be equipped with God's word? How can we become like these Israelites who had a passion, who they said, please, please read to us the scriptures. Please tell us what it is God wants. Please tell us and inform us. We want our lives. We, we don't want to, to be negligent. We don't want to, to be ignorant of what God wants. We want to know so that we can obey faithfully, that we can live godly lives, so that we can be like Christ and we can be a blessing to him and the whole world. We want the word of God to be front and center in all that we do. And so we want to do that as a church. And we're going to be asking the question, how do we do that? How do I help you guys to do that? But there's that reciprocal thing here. You know, what's your work? What's the work of the people? You know, how, are you going to jump onto those opportunities when we provide them? Will you say, yep, I'm in on that? Um, you know, hey guys, we're all going to read through the book of um, Mark next month because in the lead up to Christmas because that's what we're preaching on. And you know, how about we join in this and let's put a Facebook group together or or something and, and let's all contribute and, and let's talk about it in our home groups. As to, I don't know what, what we might do, but will, will you be willing to jump on board? Will you say, yeah, I'll, I'll get involved? Um, what is your personal reading plan like? I'm, I'm not content. To be quick with God's word doesn't mean coming once a week to hear it. It means me giving my entire self to it. It means in your week, how are you going to come to God's word and, and read it and get meaning out of it? Um, I was reading an article this week, I was sharing with Lachlan as he starts high school, that, that they've found to master something, to get good at something, it's not just through repetition. Um, and I've been there, there's times I just read my Bible for the sake because I've got to tick the box and because I've got to read the Bible. But it's just repetition, I'm not actually learning, it's not taking it in. How are we going to read the Bible so that it has impact, so that we can apply it? How we do that? We're going to be unpacking and looking at that just as we look at our other three themes over the next few weeks. That's an invitation to say, um, I'm in. I, I love the Word of God. Um, I, I love what it says. I love the fact God went to the trouble to, to write down all of this so that we could have it, um, so that we don't have to be ignorant, that we can know God's Word. I believe it is inerrant. I believe it's without error. I believe you won't find any error. I believe we can look at it and, and love it. Um, if there was error, it would be like going to morning tea this morning uh, and finding that... The, who's is on morning tea this morning? Oh, what have you prepared? What have you got? Biscuits? Cake? Biscuits. There you go. Imagine going out there and finding a, a lovely tray of biscuits. And they all look so good. There's chocolate, there's wafer, there's sweet biscuits, shortbreads, there's all sorts. And you're just looking going, oh, yum, that looks fantastic. Thank you, Anita, and, and, uh, for, for that. Um, and then Anita goes, oh, yeah, they're, they're, help yourself. There's just one problem. One of them are poisoned. I don't know which one. Um, but, but help yourself, you know. Are you going to dive in? Of course not. Of course you're not going to dive in. You're going to go, oh, gee. Um, and that'd be like the Bible. If there are errors in this thing, if, if, if you know, why... Who's to say which bit is, which bit isn't? It it's just doesn't make sense. It's not why I believe it's without error, but, but we need to come to the Scriptures with confidence. That's why as preachers, as leaders and your pastors, we're going to come to it with confidence. And if it says it, we're going to believe it and we're going to seek to do it and act on it, as all good Christians should act. In fact, I want to end with this. For me, it is the Word of God that, that sets reality. I can look at the world around me and my mind tries to make sense of it. And if I come to the Scriptures and it says something opposite, what am I going to believe? What are you going to believe? I believe the Scriptures. I believe God. Now, I'm going to try and go, how do those two fit together and, and do the hard work? Um, but the Word, I'm going to trust it. And we are too as a church. Um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your Word. Um, thank you that you 
over thousands of years have just been at work loving us and, and redeeming us, revealing your nature and your heart to us uh, until ultimately when Jesus comes and we see you in the flesh and we see who you are up close. And although we weren't able to be present, although we weren't able to see Jesus face to face, we will one day. But in the meantime, we have your word. We have your word. And it's by faith, Father, we declare that it is your word, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that we can trust it with our whole, whole being. Holy Spirit, help give us a passion for it and a desire for it. Let us hold it in high regard. Not something to be worshipped, because you alone are to be worshipped but to recognise what a gift it is to us. Help us not neglect that gift, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.